All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, so if you've been paying attention at all over the last few days, then you probably know at least two things. One, Elon Musk now owns Twitter, and two, Paul Pelosi was attacked by a underwear-clad, hammer-wielding crazy person. And this has all set the internet on fire. But what we're going to talk about today is we're going to go a little bit deeper into this whole idea of freedom of speech and what it means. Because we're definitely at a place right now at this point in history, and you can see this being fought out on Twitter every day, on what is the role that free speech really plays in society. And probably the most shocking component of this is that it's the left. It's a lot of people on the left, the people that used to see themselves as the champions of free speech that are trying to, in many cases, shut it down, restrict, and or censor it. And the real question is, why? Well, we're going to answer that today and much more on this episode of Making the Argument. We want to thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. We appreciate you being here. Like we always say, if you haven't already, head down to the description of this podcast. Click that link to join our volley chat. Say hello. We'd love to see you there and talk soon. All right. As always, Nick, host, Tina, not here. Christian, also here today. That's good. <laughs> I am. And Hamilton. It's quite an expedited introduction. It is an expedited introduction because we want to get right to the point. All right. So first things first. So this, this whole saga started off with Elon Musk making this joke on Twitter about, you know, hey, I love Twitter. And someone said, you should buy it. And he goes, really? How much does it cost? I remember that. It was December yeah. 2017. That was like five years ago. It was crazy. And it went through this whole process where at first Twitter was like, you're never going to be able to buy us. And then Elon Musk tried to buy him. And then, well, no, I'm sorry. Here's how it went. Elon Musk was like, I, I want to buy Twitter. Twitter's like, you can never buy Twitter. And then Elon Musk was like, I'm not going to buy Twitter. They're like, we'll sue you if you, you don't buy Twitter. Buy Twitter. Well, and he then, started off. And then Elon Musk went, okay, I'll buy Twitter. And then the government came and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not sure if we're going to let you buy Twitter. And now he owns Twitter. Yeah. That, that's been kind of the, the short saga of, of, this, of this whole thing. And what's interesting is, is keep in mind, the left has, has lost it over this. Like they just think this is horrible. The same left that had no problem with Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. They think it's the end of democracy as we know it. End of democracy as we know it. Why? Because a left of center, right? A guy that's I don't think ever voted for a Republican in his life. He he did in May in that oh, special election the first time special, ever. First time ever he voted for a Republican has now owned a platform and did he buy the platform under the promise that I'm going to turn this into you know, parlor 2.0, this is going to be a conservative. No, he said, we're just not going to restrict speech. We're going to let people say stuff 
and we're gonna we're gonna recognize that sometimes they're gonna say stuff that people don't like and the, that the powers that be don't like. But we're not gonna repress stories. We're not gonna ban people. We're not gonna shadow ban people. We're not gonna do this because they said something that may be unpopular with a large sector of the population. That's what he said, right? That's his. That's been his whole push on this, and it's the left that have just had an absolute meltdown over it. And keep in mind, these are this is the same movement. Well, actually, we're going to get into that. It's not the same movement. But it's at least people come from the same, the the, the left-wing spectrum uh, of political ideology that used to be all about freedom of speech. Used to be. That's the key word. And now we've got people like, you know, LeBron James getting out there and, and you know, tweeting, you know, articles that, oh, my gosh, as soon as Elon Musk took over, you know, tweets of the oh, and it's not N-word increased exponentially. It's, it's actors and musicians yeah. and corporations and legacy media. Like, yeah. I... I um, the New York Times is out there basically lamenting the death of democracy. Same thing with Washington Post, CNN, and MSNBC. Oh, the Independent. The Independent had one that was just. Uh, uh, where do we have that one? I don't think we have that one up there. The Independent had a tweet went out, or they had an article that went out, um, and it was all about how uh, it said, "Rip Twitter, 2006 to 2022, dead at the hands of Elon Musk." Oh my god! Like, what did he do to kill it? Oh, I know. He fired the executives that were basically in charge of setting the policy that was leading to, you know, massive censoring. Uh, Again, keep in mind, when Babylon B declared a man to be the man of the year, they had their account suspended, like hugely popular account suspended. Why? Well, because, well, he's trans. That's hate speech. Yeah. You know, you're, you're essentially dead naming him. Now, on the 28th, Elon did say Twitter will be forming a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints. What do you all think about that? I think what he's trying to do is, so, like, again, LeBron James goes out there and goes, oh, the use of the N-word increased exponentially on Twitter, you know, 500%. Okay, I I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. Let's let's say it is. I think what Elon Musk is is trying to do here is say that, yeah, yeah, there, there is certain content that, you know, most everybody would not want on a platform. Right, whether whether it's you know threatening content, right? So, for instance, we talk about freedom of speech. We recognize that there are some forms of speech right. that you're not legally allowed to engage in. You're not legally allowed to say, "Hey, we should all go over to Justice Kavanaugh's house and murder him." Right? You're not allowed to say that for obvious reasons. You're inciting violence toward an individual. The difference is, is what used to be obvious incitement of violence, which is I'm instructing you or encouraging you in a very deliberate fashion to take up arms and conduct some sort of violent act against somebody else. That's incitement of violence. Um, you you can't, the, the, one of the common examples, you can't go into a crowded movie theater and shout fire with the deliberative intention. Like, you know it's not a fire. You know there isn't one, but you deliberately go in and you shout that out in the hopes of creating chaos or panic or harm to other people, right? There has to be, you know, some sort of negative intent associated with, with these things. What they, what, Twitter did, and what the left turned this into, and we see this not only on, on social media platforms, we see it on college campuses, and we're going to get to that later because that's an important component of this whole story, is they changed things to essentially mean that anything that I could find offensive was therefore harmful because it might raise my stress level or it might make me feel unsafe. And so anything you said that fell within one of those categories could now be determined to be inciting violence or you know, misinformation was the other one, right? What was misinformation? Whatever they decided misinformation right. was. I would say it's even more nefarious than that. 
What you had before Elon came on was you had a small group of people that basically exclusively lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, this this bastion yeah. of of yeah. of diverse political thought, right? <laughs> um, and they went out there and they said, um, here's what you're allowed to say. Here's the narrative that you're allowed to push. Yeah. If you deviate outside those boundaries, we will throttle you, ban you, shadow ban you, restrict your content, label yeah. it misinformation or hate speech, whatever it is. Yeah. And if you complain about it, that's actually reinforcing why we have these rules in the first place, yeah. because we get to decide what is fact. Yeah. And if you disagree with that, then go make your own platform. <laughs> right. And, and and that was the ultimate Trump card that they brought up all the time. It was reality has a liberal bias. And if you disagree, just go make your platform. So the second that somebody who doesn't subscribe to that relatively authoritarian viewpoint when it comes to what you can say comes on board. And again, this is a guy that, that less than 10 years ago, Elon Musk was was beloved by the left. Yeah. Because of his work with developing electric cars and stuff yeah. like that. And suddenly they started realizing that, oh, he doesn't share our politics on everything. He just shares our politics on 50% of things. Yeah. Well, now he's an enemy. And he comes on board. And, and, and Elon has tried to, to, to walk a really fine line. A line that, quite frankly, I don't necessarily think he's actually going to succeed on. He's put out some tweets lately where he's tried to say, hold on, we're, we're not going to become a right-wing echo chamber. We're not going to, you know, pu push anything. There, there will be some restrictions on what you can say, and we're going to have this diverse, like, like he's saying that there's going to be this diverse moderation council. Like he's trying to give some sort of concession to these people on the left well, that wait. are screaming their heads off, but I don't think they're going to buy anything I, well, he has first to say. Of all, so I, think, I, I agree. I agree with you that I don't think the left's going to accept anything other than, Twitter being what they control. wanted, which yeah. is they control it and that's it. Um, I, I think what he's, I think what he's trying to do is, I think he's acknowledging that there, there are certain things. Like, so for instance, if somebody got on this platform and just started sharing pictures of like child pornography, child pornography right? That's a clear violation because it, it's illegal, right? There, there's things in there that are that are you know you're, you're not legally permitted to do, mm -hmm. and I and I think what's going to be difficult. Is is once again reengaging with this idea that if okay, if it's not illegal in the sense that you're you're not committing a crime, you're not inciting people to violence, you're not sharing content that has been banned uh, because it's like harmful to a child or something like that. If it doesn't fit one of those categories, then it, it may be something that you don't like. It may be something you find very uncomfortable. It may be something that later turn, turns out to be false or wrong or inaccurate. Right? Oh gosh, on social media, imagine that. Right, but. <laughs> That doesn't mean you should be banned for it. And and that this is the part that I think the left is having a, a hard time with. Um, and, and you see it with, like, I, I couldn't believe on Twitter when The Atlantic the Atlantic put out a, a thing. That said, oh, the Let's declare a yeah. pandemic amnesty. And then it's by Emily Oster. She goes, we need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark about COVID. And, I mean, so this is like a perfect example of... For a couple years, you demonized, destroyed, um, like took away people's businesses, jobs, learning loss, everything as a result of forced policy medical that treatment you were pushing forced medical treatment or you lose your job, right? Like and anybody that military. questioned, anybody oh, that objected yep. on social media, banned, yep. throttled, suspended, mis labeled misinformation, like, like things... I, I, I'm, I remember, because I have some family members who bought into the hysteria on yeah. COVID. I had some family members that were like, anybody that refuses to take the vaccine is 
is, I mean, even saying what I just said right now, six months ago, let alone a year ago, would have been labeled misinformation, right. dangerous rhetoric, all of this stuff. Oh, there would have been little warnings and, popping up. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and, well, and, that's, and that, many of the, these these concerns that people like myself had and others, we now know that it was all true. Well, yeah. Yeah. I think part of those uh, concerns were that, you know, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube were trying to stay in line with the federal government or what the federal government could put on those re there, there, restrictions. Yeah. But how do you think Elon is going to interact with the federal government in terms of censorship? Well, I think in many cases he's going to tell him to go F off. Like, <laughs> sorry. I oh, think, the European Union yeah. is already going out there being like, if you want your platform to exist in our countries, then you need to respect our hate speech laws. Yeah. Honestly, Elon should just go tell the European Union, you go tell your citizens yeah. that it's illegal for them to go on Twitter.com. Yeah. Like you go ahead, you know, chancellor of yeah. the uh, of, of the European Parliament, you go ahead and let them know, let, let, let the people in the Netherlands know that they're all banned from going on Twitter. What yeah. is this, communist China? Yeah. Like, it, it, honestly, he should just call their bluff. Like, yeah, like Twitter's yeah. headquartered in the United States. What, what on earth should the European, the European Union should have no influence over the content policies that well, Twitter Well, they're going to, again, and, and keep in mind, this is another thing that's really important to understand is that a lot of people assume that this whole idea of freedom of speech is something that's enshrined in all of like Western constitutions. It's not. No, it is not. The stuff you can get arrested for in the UK, in Canada, in Germany, the stuff you can get arrested for, thrown in jail for, investigated for. Um, it is is very very broad, very broad. Thing, things that you know you you would say in the United, even with like the the left trying to control these platforms like that, even even in those circumstances, we can still say things that you cannot legally say. Yeah, not 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 just on a certain in platform. You legally like, cannot say. If you if you went out and carried a sign, I mean, we we saw we actually did a why minute on this a while back. If you want to go look and get look at some examples, and it's interesting because what happened was as soon as the UK started to put in these restrictions, legal restrictions on speech, you saw both sides then trying to use that law to prosecute and silence their opposition. Right. And, and that's what's one of the big problems with this is that what we should be doing is fostering an environment where we can have good civil discussion, good civil discourse. The problem is, is that if the way you achieve good civil discourse is that you attempt to repress anybody that says something that upsets you, you're going to create an environment where you're not going to get civil discourse. You're going to create an environment where the discourse is now controlled by the powers that be. And they decide what civility looks like. And guess what? If it means locking you down, if it means not letting your kids right. go to school, if it means forcing you into vaccination, well, they will do all of that, and then they will come back years later when we find out, oh, oh my gosh, yeah, you were wrong on a lot of this stuff. Be like, you know what? We just need to forgive one another. Okay, <laughs> I wasn't telling you you had to shut down your business, keep your kids home from school, that you couldn't go to church. You could. I wasn't telling you to do it. I wasn't telling you that if you didn't take a vaccine, you would lose your job. I didn't tell. I or said, should. I said. I don't, you and I have two different approaches to this. And as long as we're not harming one another, let's, let's try the two different approaches. And your side was, no, 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 you will do what we want or we will shut you down. We will censor you. We will harm you. Is the left never concerned that at some point they may not be the ones in power? Oh no, they're terrified because now it's, again, it's not like the right is in power with Elon Musk owning Twitter. It's just them not being in power is something they're terrified well, of, and, but they're not terrified because they're going to get throttled. They're terrified because their opposition won't get throttled. I, 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 
I might actually disagree with you on that to, to a degree, Nick, because I don't actually think that the left is concerned about when they're not going to be in power because I think that there's an element of the left that believes that they will always be in power until they're not in power, and then they freak out. Hmm. But I, I, I think there's more than enough evidence to, to point to, not just in politics, but also on the private sector side, that the left genuinely believes that they're the good guys and that they will always have control of the narrative. They will always have political leaders in power and that every single election will just produce a more progressive, you know, president or Congress than the previous one and that they can never lose. I mean, for so long, the left thought demographics is destiny and we're going to take over the country. And well, that got absolutely blown out of the water when Hispanics and black voters and Asians shifted massively to the right in 2020 mm -hmm. and apparently are sticking yeah. on that, on, on that path. And so the, the left had this narrative in politics, but also in business because they control the media. They control almost every single one of the big tech social media giants. All these companies that are headquartered in California or Washington state, they're yeah. all run by leftists. The left has dominated the, the, the public forum with popular all these culture. platforms and popular culture and the media and academia and the arts. And in many ways, American politics, and they certainly control the, the, the levers of fiscal policy and monetary policy, if we talked about on this podcast before, they control all these super important institutions or mechanisms for so long. I don't think that they, they believe that they could ever lose control of them. And when they do, in many cases, only temporarily, maybe in Twitter's case, it might be permanent. But when they do lose control of, of, of the steering wheel momentarily... That's when they freak out and say democracy is in danger. Yeah. We're, we're, it's, it'll be the end of civilization as we know it. These right-wing radicals are going to take over. But until that event actually happens, until Orange Man gets into the White House or until uh, Elon Musk purchases Twitter, the, the left, I think, has, has blinders on and believes genuinely that they will always have control. So, so well, I, 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 that, 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 that's where I'm, I'm, I'm coming from, and, and I think that's a little bit no, of a disagreement. I don't, I don't think you're, I don't, I don't think you're wrong. I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I mean, I used to joke around that when Democrats are in the minority, they act like they're in the majority, and when they're in the majority, they act like there'll never be another election cycle. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it is weird. Like I, I think they're so convinced of, of their particular way of thinking that it, it's just, it's just a matter of time before it catches on, and then every once in a while they're shocked when there's any sort of pushback. When they get a setback. Well, and, and it, it was interesting because I was, you know, I, I was at an event where I was. At at an education summit, we were having discussions about one, one of the courses had to do with, um, oh, here, I'll, I'll read off the exact title. It was uh, Balancing Free Speech, Academic Civility and Inclusivity. Now, you need to understand, this was, this was not a, a right-wing seminar I was going to, right? <laughs> um, but what was, what was interesting is, is we were having this discussion, and it was a very civil discussion, right? It was a very civil discussion. But what I, what I found interesting was some of the examples that were being used. And, and this goes into the, the second thing that we wanted to talk about today. And why, why is it that the, the left has increasingly become hostile to what we would have traditionally considered freedom of speech? Because, again, I'm old enough to remember in the 1990s when conservatives wanted things like a constitutional amendment to make it illegal to burn the flag. And, and it, it was interesting because... I don't support that. And a lot of conservatives, how could you not support a Because you have the freedom to express that if you want to. I don't agree with it. It infuriates me. I, I had friends come home and flag Drave Coppins. If you, if you want to burn that flag, I, I, I'm very opposed to that. But should it be illegal 
Should no. I be able to use government force yeah. to throw you in jail? Should I be able to get government force to throw you in jail because you took a piece of property that is yours, the American flag you, that you own, and, you, destroyed and it. you decided to destroy it? I don't like that. I don't agree with that. But should it be illegal? Yeah. No. Okay. Now we're getting into a cage where, it, again, I think it's confusing to some of us who on, on certain issues of with the left said, yeah, as much like the left might have cheered it because they thought it was a great idea to burn the flag. Uh, or the, the left might have uh, opposed that because they liked that form of protest. I don't like that form of protest. But we both agreed it was a legitimate form of protest. Oh, okay, I, And now I, we're finding ourselves in a situation where, no, that, that isn't the rules anymore. The I, This is, honestly, this is going to be my favorite segment of the entire podcast today. Because the question that I had for you, Nick, was is like, how did we get to this point where younger generations like myself and Hamilton and anybody younger than us, Hamilton and I are in our late twenties. Anybody our age or younger, we don't have the firsthand experience of interacting with people on the left that are like true defenders of freedom of speech, like the ones that existed in the fifties, sixties and seventies and eighties. Because back in our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation, somebody that identified as a member of the left or a member of the democratic party in the 60s or 70s, they they were defenders of free speech. Like 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 the average one, I think I think would have said, yes, I, you know, will defend your right to express yourself even if I disagree with you. But our experience with the left today is literally the exact opposite. Well, it's 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 the left mocking free speech, and it's the left saying that well, you know, free. It's the left using phrases like hate speech, okay. right? Which, by the way, in the U.S., <laughs> yeah. there is no such thing as hate speech. There's constitutionally protected speech, and then there's not protected speech. That is, you directly Inciting threatening violence, violence like against yeah. somebody. But yeah. you saying something that offends somebody else or that they might not agree with or you challenging somebody's preconceived notions on, on say, for example, COVID – that's all constitutionally protected speech in the United States, but that's all speech that the left will use any mechanism to shut down. So the question that I've got is how did we get from a point where the old school left yeah. in like the 60s, the hippies and stuff like that would have defended free speech. But today you have these like little authoritarians that are going around and when they can't use the government to do it, they will use private corporations to do well, it. Well, I think it's because the hippies that were protesting that during the, the Vietnam War and everything else, and maybe um, you, you could even say they – they didn't have the same grip on academic Hollywood cultural institutions, very, very critical cultural institutions. They did not have the same grip on it that they do now. And so now it's about controlling what you have. And I want to, I want to break to something here real quick. Um, Bring up the other. Yeah, there we go. This is a, this is a report from the bipartisan bipartisan policy.org. This is essentially an organization. um, It's called uh, the bipartisan policy center. And uh, like the the two heads of it are um, former governors Chris uh, Gregoire from Washington, Democrat from Washington, and Jim Douglas, who's a former Republican governor from Vermont. Um, and they did this report that we went over in this um, seminar. And what was interesting is when the seminar kicked off, um, they were talking about basically they are frustrated with the legislatures coming in and creating more like free speech laws uh, that apply to campuses. And the, the response was like, okay, we understand why you're doing it. We, we acknowledge that there's a problem. However, by the same token, you know, there are some controversial speakers that come on and, you know, it's, it, it, you, there's additional security needed for them. And, and, you know, we can't just ignore that that's required. And I pointed out, I said, well, okay, wait a second. 
If you say that, well, there's more security required for this speaker, therefore they have to pay a higher fee or it can't be accomplished, you've just incentivized their opposition to create an environment where they need more security. Wow. I said not not to mention the fact, and they brought this up in their in their report. It's called a censorious minority. I'm going to read this up. Surveys of undergraduates find that a significant minority are willing to shut down speech. In a national survey of undergraduates, 13% said that it is always or sometimes acceptable to use violence to stop a speech, protest, or rally. 39% said it is always or sometimes acceptable to engage in shouting down speakers or trying to prevent them from talking. Surveys of faculty in fields such as philosophy and political science, as well as other surveys, document that a significant minority of faculty admit to a willingness to discriminate against their political opponents in hiring, symposia invitations, grant decisions, and paper reviews, and that the faculty and departmental culture may stifle open debate. Shoutdowns of campus speakers called to dismiss faculty for controversial research or extra um, mural expression and social media frenzies over controversial expression by students or faculty while driven by a campus minority curb open inquiry and academic discourse for all. Now, what this has led to, and this goes into the, the it's the next paragraph down, is widespread self-censorship. One national survey found that 63% of students agreed that the climate on my campus prevents some people from saying things they believe because others might find them offensive. Now, here was the other thing I, here was the other thing I pointed out when we were at this seminar. I said, okay, I, I hear a lot of talk about how, you know, hey, we, we, want a, we want a free speech environment, but we also want an environment of civil discourse. I said, that's interesting because I showed up to a university and the students have found out that I was going to speak there who didn't show up at the speech, as it turns out, but they painted on a wall, F Delegate Freitas. I said, now the only thing I was upset about is I didn't get a picture. I really wanted that for my office. I said, and I realize that this is a common sentiment, sometimes among my colleagues. I said, and I don't want any of, I'm not asking, calling for any of those students to get you know, shut down or whatnot, but this idea that, oh, well, we're really trying to protect civil discourse. When that manifests itself in saying that if Ben Shapiro comes up to speak, Right, that may require additional security. That may require additional scrutiny. But anybody on the left that would be considered like a left-wing counterpart of Ben Shapiro doesn't have to go through those things and doesn't experience things like that. Then, I'm sorry, then we don't have a, a balanced civil discourse environment at your university. Nobody can say that, that if a member of the Young Turks went to UVA or if Delegate yeah. Marcus Simon yeah. went to UVA that there would be mobs of people trying to prevent that speaker yeah. from attending or people spray painting graffiti saying F delegate Simon. Yeah. And if anybody did that, how much you want to bet that the left would be like, this is more right wing violence being yeah. incited You're against us. Violence. Well, and, and that's what I, and you know what? It's very similar to that. It yeah. reminds me a lot about what happened recently with uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband yeah. where who knew that, that, underwear clad Berkeley living nudists yeah. were actually secretly Republican now, because right that's apparently what the media and what the left in general is trying to accuse. There's so many people on Twitter, the same blue check marks that are every day now promising. I'm going to be gone very soon. Just <laughs> yeah. wait, just yeah. wait. I'm not going to be here soon. The same people that are saying that are now going out there being like, the right is morally responsible for what happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband. First off, 
I'm actually very genuinely sorry for what happened to yeah. Nancy Pelosi's husband. Nobody deserves to be attacked with a hammer, regardless of, of my thoughts on their political views. Yeah. And I hope that he recovers. Absolutely. And you know what? I wish the left would extend that exact same sympathies to Rand Paul when he was tackled and beaten by his neighbor. Oh, yeah. But many of the same people that are going out there and saying the right incited this violence because of some Fox News ad about Nancy Pelosi a decade ago are, are now... If you scroll through their Twitter history and you search Rand Paul's neighbor from tweets that they sent from just a few years ago, you'll find them mocking him, saying oh, yeah. we're all we all support his neighbor. Can we send him more lawnmowers? Oh, Can, how, like, how like, about how about this? How about a, a little over a month ago, a teenager was run down by a, a grown man. I think he was in his forties. Like killed him, killed the teenager. And said specifically it was because why well, I think he was associated with right-wing extremist groups. And this was shortly after Joe Biden's speech essentially accusing almost half the country of being a threat to democracy. Now, I'm just curious. What are, are the same Democrats that are now that now are so comfortable with saying that clearly this was an act of right-wing extremism. That's right. A, a, a nudist protesting San Francisco resident Right. That that's that is the model for a right wing extremist, apparently. Yeah. Right. But then you have somebody that ran over a kid and murdered him explicitly because, explicitly because, because, of, because of his was, politics. Nothing. Nothing. And and it's again, what I go back to is when you go back to this report, right? When you go back to this report and people ask, how could this be? Well, when you have universities which are overwhelmingly left wing. Right. Delegate Glenn Davis pointed this out, too. He's like, let's go and look at the political donations from the major universities within the Commonwealth of Virginia. And he went through it. Every single one is like 90 percent plus goes to Democrats. Right. The same people that are lecturing us on diversity don't have any real diversity of thought when it actually comes to pretty important issues. I reminded of that political Thomas ideology. Quote. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the next time one of your, uh, um, you know, an academic. Uh, lectures you on diversity. Ask them how many Republicans are in their sociology department. Yeah. Well, and, and even in this report, they said we're, we're talking about philosophy and political science. So two areas where you're supposed to have robust debate about policy issues, about the way to think about things are being dominated by people that not only are left of center, but are people left of center who believe it's perfectly appropriate to discriminate against people that have political views or philosophies different from your own. Now, they will immediately try to categorize this as good ideas versus bad ideas. So it's not the idea that we can have, like, it's not the idea that two good, honest people can have an, an honest discussion about the marginal tax rate. It's if you don't agree with our view of the government implementation you of taxes, you're you're bad, right? There's yeah. something wrong with you, and so what it ends up being is this environment that, when it turns out that they're wrong, they were wrong for the right reasons. When it turns out that we're correct, we're correct for the wrong reasons, right? So when they're wrong, it's for the right reasons. When we're right, it's for the wrong reasons. So heads they win, tails you lose, and that's why it, it is okay for them to be able to shut you down. And the other thing that I pointed out, and I think this part is important. I said, the reason I said only 13%, I said 13% of students say that it's sometimes are always acceptable to use violence to stop a speech protest or rally. I said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm surprised it's not higher. And here's why. Because when we use terms like microaggressions, here's what you need to understand. We view violence very differently. There's defensive violence and there's offensive violence. And all of us treat those things very, very differently and for good reason. But the moment you start telling a student 
then anytime you say something, I said, and there, there may be something wrong with the colloquialism. I'm not debating that. But the moment you start using this term microaggression, what you're saying is that's aggression. Then it's, it's a very, very hop, skip, and a jump away from this whole idea of, okay, well, if it, if it makes me feel bad or if it makes me feel stressed or it makes me feel in danger, it's not only aggression, it's violence. It's aggressive violence. So how do you meet aggressive violence? You meet aggressive violence with defensive violence. And so now me saying something that hurts your feelings is no longer an exercise in free speech. It's no longer even dialogue. Now it's me engaging in active violence against you. And if you feel compelled to use violence against me, well, you're just defending yourself or others. I said, so I'm not shocked that 13% believe this. I'm shocked that only 13% were willing to say they believe this. And it's, and it's, in my opinion, directly because we're fostering that on the college campuses. And then you don't get to tell me that it's going in both directions because it largely is not, at least not on a college campus. The, 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 the incredible thing about all these statistics on like universities and stuff like that isn't the numbers that we're seeing, right? 63% of students. The question is, why is it not 100% of students yeah. that say that the climate on my campus prevents some people from saying things they believe because they um because others might find them offensive. Yeah. When I was in college, there there were many things that I I could not say in my class. Yeah. And 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 I'm sorry for those who want to defend the university system, but there is nobody that convinced me because I lived through it. There's nobody that can convince me that the university system does not enforce a 100% left-wing perspective on everything. Mm-hmm. Because that's exactly what I got. There was no balance. There was no anything. It was, here's the facts. Here's the narrative. And if you disagree with this narrative, you are not just wrong. You are a bad person. And when that narrative, when that, that worldview is pushed on people, anybody that disagrees with it, well, by definition, they have to shut up because they don't want to, they, they don't want their grades to suffer. They don't want their colleagues or their students to go after them. And, and, and so the, the self-censoring, there is... A, about a year ago, Ben Shapiro had a debate with a member of the Young Turks, and um, it was actually a very civil it was, debate. It was fascinating. It was. it was a very fascinating debate. And one of the things that was brought up in that debate was about free speech. And one of the statistics that Shapiro threw out was, well, when you look at, at, at across the entire political spectrum, ironically enough, every single person across the political spectrum, except for people that identify on the far left, say that they have to self-censor for fear of of saying something that will be considered offensive or wrong in the eyes of somebody else. Every single person, including center-left people, including liberals, everybody other than the far left, and the further right you go, the higher the percentage is of people who say that they have to self-censor. And it doesn't just exist on college campuses. The whole reason of this podcast, we opened up this podcast by talking about what's going on with Twitter. And I kind of want to circle back to the whole Twitter equation because it's not just happening on universities and it's not just happening in the media. It's happening in social media as well. And I think part of the reason that the left is just absolutely melting down right now was because this this illusion that they control the narrative completely has finally been not shattered quite, but just merely questioned. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and I think that, again, how, how did we get there? I think it really, it started with education. It, it, it started in our schools. It really, I mean, a- academia, obviously. But this is, what, what again, what is fascinating to me is this is a report that, again, is put out by an organization that's ostensibly bipartisan. Now, I, I will say this, my impression after looking through what the organization, um, you know, does and some of the things they talk on, I, I would say that this is an organization comprised of people that are left-wing and center. <laughs> 
and, so and maybe center left. maybe on some maybe on some issues a little bit center right, okay. right? But they always do this. It's like, oh look, look, let's say we got some Republicans on there. It's like, <laughs> yeah, the, the okay. GOP governor I, I, of Vermont. Expl- yeah. Explain to me where this Republican actually stands on on like the core issues within the Republican platform. And 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 again, I'm I'm not I'm not even denigrating him. I'm not saying he's a, he's a bad guy or he's not a real Republican. I'm just saying that when I when I look at the majority of what your organization does and how they talk about these things and said, and here's a perfect example. They shared an editorial that they did talking about how they were trying to encourage college campuses to actually foster civil dialogue on very, very, you know, um, controversial issues. But the examples they used were of deans of universities who actually helped their students through the process of one speaker being a critic of the trans movement and another speaker being a white supremacist and how they, they went through the process of, you know, allowing students to be able to, you know, hear and understand from people that they vehemently disagreed with. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, so that's the example you have a a critic of the trans movement and a white supremacist as if those two things are like, Oh, see, look, look, one for one. no, no, you're not going to put a critic of the trans movement, which could be someone that says, you know what? I don't think it's a JK good idea. J.K. Rowling. I don't think it's a good idea to, <laughs> to cut off the perfectly healthy breasts of a 14-year-old girl who's confused right, as she's going through puberty. That is not the same thing as a white supremacist, like a dedicated white supremacist. But see, in their minds, it's this idea of like, here's this pantheon of ideas, right, that are all together, white supremacy and criticism of the trans movement. And we're going to help our students who we know as good students hate all of these bad things, but we're going to help them understand it ostensibly to be able to oppose it. The narrative is, is we need to, to figure out a way to help our students cope with wrong and bad ideas right because if you lump these things in with white supremacy yeah then then suddenly what you're implicitly telling people is these are all wrong factually and morally yeah. right but but you know we need to we're, you know we're going to be tolerant so we're going to we're going to teach our, our students how to tolerate things that are factually incorrect i'm sorry but being critical of of yeah. Some of the stuff Transition that is going on within, within, in fact, ironically enough, within some of the university systems, right? Yeah. With the Vanderbilt yeah. scandal and stuff like that. Yeah. That is not a morally wrong position to hold. Yeah. That but is not on the same it, par they, as, as, as I believe that, that people with a certain skin color are inherently better people than everybody else, yeah. because that's what white supremacy is. Which it's, is inherently immoral and wrong yes. and ridiculous. But this is, this is the problem is that even when they, even when they believe that they're trying to tackle this issue, like even when they're saying, okay, we, we, we get it. We get it. It's not a good idea to censor speech because it can lead to the censoring of other speech that, you know, we all agree is good or something like, okay, so Here's what we're going to do. You're still setting up that environment. You're still setting up that mindset of people that we're going to put all of these unacceptable ideas in one category because we don't like them. And we're going to treat them like these are all essentially the same. These are all the morally, um, you know, uh, you know, morally hellacious, morally unacceptable viewpoints that we're going to expose you to so that you can defeat them. Right. But then you're putting things in there that don't make sense. Like if you wanted to say white supremacy is inherently immoral, I totally agree with that. That is a, that is a true statement. And any campus that would push white supremacy is engaging in something that is evil, right? But then when you're going to say, oh, 
and we we want to charge extra security you know fees for Ben Shapiro to show up. Or if it's a conservative speaker, we're going to go ahead and act like well this this could incite violence. Or I'm going to have my entire faculty come out and and give you know students a day off because they were just so. They were just so harmed by the idea that a conservative would come and speak about, I don't know, lowering taxes or school choice or maybe, God forbid, pro-life issues, right? So even when you have a group that says, yep, we need to foster greater civil discourse on college campus, even when it's a group that sets itself up to try to be bipartisan in order to combat, you know, just mere bias confirmation, They are still engaging in the sort of rhetoric and the sort of comparisons that is pushing a particular narrative. And and that's the part that was very frustrating to me is that I am am willing to accept somebody with a completely different worldview than me, completely different political philosophy when it comes to these issues, but it's the idea of of always trying to categorize our, our differences as moral versus immoral. And, and that being the official position of the university or the official position of an organization that claims to be trying to foster greater civil discourse. How can you have greater civil discourse if the moment I show up to the argument, you're automatically saying is the official position from the university, here's the bad guy, everyone. Come listen to what the bad guy is going to say so we know what the bad guy thinks and then we can defeat the bad guy. Like, that's not civil discourse. That's not fair either. It's that, 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 that's not true. So so how how did this end? How did this conference end? When 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 all these groups because this was basically well, this center is this left. was one this is one thing. Uh, you know, again, the the conference was good. I'm glad I went. I'm glad we had it. I thank all the people who attended and discussed things. Um, and this was this was like one of the last things we discussed. And there was some acknowledgement that yes, this is predominantly an issue. Like again, kudos. He said, yeah, this is predominantly an issue now uh, with the left on college campus. He goes, it wasn't always that way. He said, you know, during the Vietnam War, it was predominantly an issue with the right. Okay, I, I don't I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, but for the sake of argument, let's say it was. What you're saying is, okay, something that happened 50 to 60 years ago, you know, and, and now and now we're here. The real question is, is how do we deal with this? And what, what I told them was, I said, look, I'm the, I'm the guy that has carried the legislation you guys are opposing. And I'm going to continue to carry it until I actually see that there's a legitimate commitment from these universities to actually be able to support the sort of civil discourse that we're talking about. But again, if, if I'm going to continue to have my constituents either going to these universities or sending their kids to these universities where they're essentially being told that when you express this sort of opinion, and I'm not talking about white supremacy, right? I'm not talking about racism. I'm talking about someone that, I don't know, believes in traditional marriage, right? As biblically defined. If every time that student talks, they're being told they're guilty of a microaggression or, or an aggression, or that that speech is the equivalent of violence, then what you're doing is you're, you're fostering the sort of environment where now that student could actually be harmed and the person harming them will think they're doing so with complete moral authority because after all, they're just engaging in defensive violence. Right? They're protecting themselves or somebody else on campus from this hateful speech, which is inciting violence. And so to kind of wrap this up, how did we get to where we're at today on, on social media? How do we get to where we're at today where, where the left now is the one that is pushing for censorship? It's, because, it, it's not because all of a sudden the left woke up one day and realized, oh, we want to ban every speech we don't agree with. That's not what they did. They did something very different. 
And morally, it's far more relevant to the conversation that we're having. And conservatives better learn to understand, recognize, and actually intellectually combat this. They're not banning what you're saying or not trying to censor what you're saying because you disagree with them. What's happened is they've taken a whole category of thought, of speech, of expression, and they have put it in to a category of aggressive violence. It is immoral. It is wrong. It is bad. It has to be stopped. They have a moral obligation to stop it. And so if you want to know how they justify what they're doing right now, and if you want to know why it seems so contradictory to what they were saying 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's not because they feel differently about the concept of the freedom of speech. They don't think this speech falls within anything that is entitled to any sort of protection because it's bad and it's evil and it causes people to be harmed. And they're just doing everything within their power to protect the innocent and the vulnerable and the marginalized. So understand where they're coming from when they, they make the sort of justifications they do to shut you down. And you better learn how to effectively respond to it. Nick, I got one final question because I think if, if I were to come to you and I'd say, Nick, is there any room for Twitter to remove anything off of the platform or any social media? Because I can imagine myself having a conversation like this with someone. What would your response be to that? Yes. Yeah. If somebody goes onto Twitter and they start sharing child pornography, not only should they be banned from Twitter, all that information should immediately be sent over to the police so they can lock them up. Right? So no, there, there is such a thing as, as speech, which is legitimately illegal and harmful, but harmful is not you hurt my feelings. Right. Harmful is you've actually broken the law or you've actually incited violence or criminal activity toward an innocent. Yeah. So let's just make it, let's just make a very, very easy distinction here and let's not pretend let's not blur those lines. And this is the part that left really needs to understand is because they think they've cracked the code on this whole censorship thing where it's like, no, 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 we believe in freedom of speech, but that speech is harmful speech. That speech is the equivalent of inciting violence. Okay. That works out real well for you until the powers that be decide that what you're saying incites violence. Yeah. The game can be played. They, they keep thinking that they can make these little linguistic changes and it's, and it's going to change the, the overall narrative or the playing field. No, it doesn't. Anything you use to engage in an act of, of you know, censorship, like de deliberate censorship, can now be used against you. So don't do it. Like that's the easy part of this. Don't do it. So I've got a follow-up question to what Hamilton just said, because I don't think that they're not going to just do it or, 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 or just not do it. Because as we said earlier, um, the, the left perpetually believes that they're just always going to be in power and, and until they're not, and then they freak out. So I've got a question for you about what do you think is going to happen going forward? Not just for Twitter, but but for this debate in general about freedom of speech. Like, I personally, I think the left is going to become more and more intolerant and totalitarian when it comes to to policing speech where wherever it controls the ability to do so. But I want to hear. I, well, we'll I, end with this, and you can you can end up making the argument at the very end too, if you'd like. So there was a so there was another attendee of the conference who who made a statement that said, you know, I really feel like we're we're and, and left of center, left of center guy. So I really think that we're in a, in a new age right now where we have the authoritarians and then we have the people that support democracy. Now, here's what's interesting about that. And I, and I think this also plays in. Now, the, the gentleman who said this is a, a nice guy. Um, we, disagree on, we disagree on policy and we clearly disagree on, on what the real <laughs> heart of the, the problem is right now. But think about that statement. Authoritarian, 
versus democracy. See, what is implicit in that is the idea that, well, democracy is the process of open civil dialogue and democracy is the process of freedom and democracy is what gives us individual liberty and the ability to have this civil discourse. No, it isn't. No, it is not. Democratic processes may very well be a necessary component to establishing a free society, but to act like it's a sufficient component or to act like it is the opposite of authoritarianism is absurd. I I got news for people. A majority of people voted for a lot of authoritarian regimes. A majority of people in certain places have voted for authoritarian regimes that would come in, forcefully confiscate what you have, redistribute it, set up rules, make your kids go to you know the schools they wanted, make you run your business a particular way. So the antithesis to authoritarianism is not democracy. The antithesis to authoritarianism is liberty, individual liberty at that. But here's one of the reasons why I think, to, to your point, is the left going to continue to move in this direction? I think they will, and I think they will because they've, they've already accepted this idea that democracy, which is nothing more than the majority deciding what the laws are going to look like through either direct referendum or through their government representatives. But as long as the decision was made democratically, well, then it's okay to use authoritarian mechanisms to compel other people to do what you want. So that, that whole idea of using force or coercion of violence is still present. They've added some extra steps. As opposed to taking on a position where you say, okay, well, wait a second. Real civility within society requires us to respect a certain degree of autonomy in the other person's decision-making process where they may make decisions I don't like, I don't approve of, I don't think are good, but as long as they're not infringing on the rights or liberties of someone else, they should be free to make them. And they should have to deal with the consequences of those actions. When you replace that with, no, 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 we're going to decide what's acceptable in pretty much every aspect of your life through a majority rules. Don't tell me that isn't authoritarian. And so I think That's the part that concerns me, and that's also the reason why I think you see people like Elon Musk and Tulsi Gabbard and Tim Pool and others who were all on the left, and they were on the left for reasons that they associated with left-wing ideology, i.e. civil liberties, civil rights, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And then all of a sudden they started to realize, well, wait a second, there's, there's one brand of liberalism that may be open to a whole bunch of ideas or concepts that conservatives are not as comfortable with, but are not trying to impose it on you. And then there's another brand of leftism, which is rooted in the authoritarian control of mechanisms of power and influence in order to compel you to get what they want. There's a word to describe this. Um, honestly, it might be worth doing a podcast at some point. Uh, the, the, the phrase um, for those that are listening um, and honestly, you you guys might want to look this up after the show, is the successor ideology. It's a phrase that uh, was coined uh, just a few years ago. Um, uh, the, the guy who, who coined it, he, um, in fact, actually, I want to read it off. Um, it's only one line. Um, Wesley Yang was the um, guy who wrote about this. He's uh, He's got a very interesting Twitter account. Um he describes what he calls the successor ideology as, um, quote, 
authoritarian utopianism that masquerades as liberal humanism while usurping it from within. And he describes the successor ideology as a series of, um, it's an ideology within the left-wing political movement in the U.S. that's that centered around intersectionality, social justice, identity politics, and anti-racism, which is supposedly um, uh, intended to replace conventional liberal values of pluralism, freedom of speech, colorblindness, and free inquiry and speech. Um, I, I I find that that very interesting because that's where you get the whole like woke movement from. Yeah. That's where you you get some of the stuff that's happening yeah, yeah. on college campuses. One of those things, yeah, the, the first thing he described, right, the, the liberals, that's what Tulsi Gabbard, Tim Pool, Elon yeah, Musk yeah. thought they were a part of. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it took this other turn. They're like, um, yeah, let me off. I don't, I'm not going along yeah, with this. I'm so I do think actually let's, let's go ahead and plan to do a whole episode on that because I, that's the first time sure. hearing of it. And that actually sounds pretty fascinating. So I'm going to, I'm going to finish this up with one final thought. I think it's the third time I finished up this episode, <laughs> but one, one final thought. And that is this, this can be intimidating, especially if you're in college right now, or you're sending your kids off to college. And one of the things that I would, I would encourage you to do. And I used to, I used to always say, Hey, look, if you're in college, get your paper, get your degree, get out, you know, you can't do that. At this point, what you're really going to have to do is you're going to have to figure out what you stand for, why you stand for it, and you're going to have to step, you're going to have to stand up for it. Because if you're not willing to do it in an environment like that, then you're not going to be willing to do it in more dangerous environments. So it, it is time to buck up and, and actually question things. If that includes making your professor upset, you might have to take that risk. You might have to assume that risk. I'm sorry. I just, that is what I firmly believe now. But be prepared. But be prepared for consequences. But that's what actually breeds courage in the face of this sort of censorship that we're actually seeing right now. And the other thing I would say is this. I do believe in civil discourse. I know I get heated. I know I get frustrated at times. I do believe in civil discourse. But here's one of the things I would encourage you to do is, is the moment someone is saying, you can't say that because that's inciting violence. Now, if you are inciting violence, don't. Stop. Right? But if you're not, if that's just being used as a way to, to shut down debate, the obvious question back is, well, okay, what you just did is now inciting violence against me because that also hurts my feelings. So now neither of us can talk because if the other one can always claim that whatever you say that upsets them is now in, 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 inciting violence or some sort of phobia, then there is no room for discussion, period. You're going to have to be willing to both express and hear ideas that might cause you to question things, might cause you some discomfort. Yeah. But what we need in society right now is not more sensitivity training. In fact, what we need is more you know, insensitive insensitivity training because we need people to be able to deal with these ideas. And, and I'll, and I'll leave it on one other, one other Can thing. Can I make one note on that? Yeah. While I was at Liberty, my roommate and I, we both were very involved in two different clubs on campus. One was a gun rights club and one was a first amendment club. And, it, it what you're talking about being in a college classroom, it, it can be very intimidating to go into that situation, knowing that you have a professor who's on the left. And then when you try and push back on those ideas, it's like, oh, well, what are they going to come back with? Am I prepared to engage in this conversation? Uh, but my roommate and I would go back and forth on these different subjects and play devil's yeah. advocate. And being in a scenario like that and practicing in that um, situation leads to confidence. And so oh, yeah. if if you are a student on campus lacking confidence to do this in class, do things which are going to make you more confident and practice having these conversations. That That's a great point. I mean, one of the things I, I've done with my kids before, and I, and I love doing this when when people want to, is I'm like, okay, I'm going to play the devil's advocate role, right? I'm going to, I'm going to go on to the other side. I'm going to argue for something that I don't necessarily yeah. agree at, but I'm going to, I'm going to give it the best 
possible argument that I can. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to try to make a straw man. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to make the best possible argument I can for the opposite of what I believe so that I can be prepared to answer those things. Right. And, and that, and, and once you do that one, it is, it is fun. Yeah. Um, and two, you will find yourself going into more scenarios where this is, this is one of the most exciting things you'll experience in an argument is when you've really thought about this and you, you make your statement and then they respond and you're ready for that response yeah. and yeah. you're ready for the next one. And then you're ready for the next one. And you realize like, Oh my gosh, I really have thought about this. Right. And I, and I do have a correct position on it. And the way I know I have a correct position on it is because I've been able to respond to every critique yeah. of my position and do so effectively. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's a great place to be. All right. That's it. I'm wrapping it up now. So once again, thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you got something out of this episode. Please let us know in the comments. Also go on our volley chat. Uh, if you want to do a video telling us how wrong you think we are, that'd be a great place to do it. It'd also be a great place to do it if you think we did a great job. So thank you very much. And we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.